0: In August 1965, the neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles, which had been ground under the wheel of de facto and de jure segregation for decades, lit up in a swirl of destruction that lasted almost a full week. It was neither the first nor the last time that black Angelenos would be forced to speak the language of the unheard. The Watts riots or rebellion would cast a long shadow on the history of South Los Angeles. The absentee rule of the white city establishment which treated black LA as a series of occupied ghettos, created and contributed to the interplay of hope and despair that can be seen in 1978's Killer of Sheep. Charles Burnett's first full-length feature, the movie served for him many purposes. It was his thesis project at UCLA's film school, a hopeful entry point into the wider world of filmmaking. But it was also a personal project, one that would continue throughout Burnett's career, a project to correct the invisibilizing of black narratives in Hollywood. Burnett wanted to make a film that would portray the nuances and gray spaces of living in poverty in black L.A., the struggles that working men and women carried with them in a way that had been seldom seen before on screen. Most of all, he wanted to show the lives that he had seen in a way that his friends and his neighbors would recognize. In pursuit of that goal, he asked many of them to be his actors in the film. Burnett says the germ for the movie really sprouted when he was riding on a city bus. He would often see the same man, a dejected-looking man, on his way to or from work. One day, he struck up a conversation with the man and asked him what he did for a job. The man said he worked at a slaughterhouse, and in their conversation, described what he did, which included killing animals with a sledgehammer. Burnett made the worker into the character of Stan, who would serve as the central rotor for the film, around whom other events would turn. Burnett turned over the thought in his mind and kept returning to the way such a job would both haunt and dehumanize those who did it. That theme would run throughout the movie, which drew out the human exhaustion and the inexhaustible humanity, the strife and the striving that carried on and intermingled in Watts after the riots. 30 Mile Zone presents Killer of Sheep, Uh, No tagline this week because we are going to be discussing a film that did not originally have a theatrical release. You are listening to 30 Mile Zone. This is, of course, the LA Movie Movie Club. I'm Scott Frazier here with co-host Allison Herman. Allison, how are you? It's Valentine's Day as we're recording this. Happy Valentine's Day.
1: It is. Happy Valentine's Day to you and to our wonderful guest. I'm so excited to talk about this movie.
0: Thanks for having me. <laughs> Today, as you as you heard already, we have an excellent guest. We have Frank Shong of the L.A. Times, one of my favorite columnists writing about Los Angeles right now. I'm so happy that you uh, were able to join us for this show. It's great to get people who have um, really, in, I think like intensely felt views on on L.A. I love that. The more that we can get of that, is just the better. The better.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm just you know flattered that someone is interested in my opinion about movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, this movie in particular, I feel like it's hard not to have uh, a, like a reaction to. Before we do get into Killer Sheep, which is our film for the day, um, I have a few notes for just our listeners. Thirty miles on this show is a sister show or some kind of companion to LA podcast which is a weekly discussion about politics in Los Angeles. And if you've made your way here, not by way of LA Pod, give it, a, give it a listen. We have links in the show notes to the feed. You can subscribe if you're new to TMZ and you like it. Also subscribe to this show. Leave us a positive review. It's genuinely helpful, helping us get the show out to other people. And if you're new, you're in luck because we have actually 20 old episodes that we have on the L.A. Podcast feed already. And lastly, you know, if you're in a good place to do so, if you can support us with $5 a month, we have our Sepulveda Pass program, which is at patreon.com slash L.A. Podcast. Yeah, $5 a month actually goes a long way for us. So that's it for that. Today's episode, as we mentioned, Frank Shang, we're here how are you doing? You uh, you were doing this record remotely. We thought we maybe we would pull you over from the west side to to do an in person record, but still, <sighs> it's good to see you this uh, Monday afternoon.
2: Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. You know, just trying to uh, get the week started, and um, yeah, sorry I couldn't make it over. I just moved to Venice, and like. Venice is in some type of, like, weird, you know, uh, vortex where everything is, like, 50 <laughs> minutes away. You know, like, it doesn't matter where I'm going. It's, like, really far away. So it's, yeah, I was so about true. to like, say, it, it, it's
1: like, I didn't realize you were calling in from the west side or else we probably would have just started planning this remotely anyway. Because
2: <laughs> that's basically <laughs> a long-distance record. Uh, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I like to drive really far for places, but... Uh, <laughs> I just drove to the SGV from Venice and it took like an hour and a half and yeah anyway
0: when you uh, live in Venice everything is uh, a long distance commute it does feel like the peak neighborhood where it's like when you move to Venice your life has to be about
2: being in Venice yeah <laughs> like yeah I don't extent. I don't like it that much here you know <laughs> I like living here I like living by the beach you know but uh I, I, there, there's the best Chinese restaurant is Mao's Kitchen, you know, and I've just been asking like every Chinese person I see, you know, where do they get groceries? You know, I need rice, I need rice, wine, vinegar. And uh, like the massage people on the boardwalk and everyone's like, nah, there's no place to go.
1: You're for getting a 99 place. Ranch in Westwood like pretty soon. So you can just count down the days. Yeah,
2: when that happens, it's going to be a game changer. I think that's going to cause a, a humongous migration of Asians.
0: <laughs> I, that honestly, they've been, how long has that been in the works for? That's been like three or four years at this point, right? At I've least heard, a couple of uh,
2: years Yeah, yeah. People have been talking about it for a while.
0: Okay, well, let's get into the movie for this week. We have, I I had not seen this one before. Had either of you watched this film before this episode?
1: I had watched parts of it um, because the way I first learned about this film was when I first moved to L.A. to kind of educate myself. I watched L.A. Plays Itself, Tom Anderson's Incredible three-and-a-half-hour-long video essay that we should maybe do on this pod at some point, although it would maybe be difficult Mm -hmm. to discuss a video essay. But um, one of the primary texts he uses to discuss, like, a film that is actually made in L.A. about L.A. and shows a part of L.A. that is not very frequently displayed on screen— is Killer of Sheep, and I'd always wanted oh. to loop back and really seriously give it what it's due. And so I I took the opportunity and threw it on our schedule.
2: Yeah, I have to go back and watch L.A. Plays Itself again, because uh, at the time, he was just making references to this film I hadn't seen, so, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, too, I, I remember watching L.A. Plays Itself, but it was so long ago for me at this point that I didn't even remember really that aspect of it it didn't stick with me that much from as being part of the um as being part of LA plays itself but now i think i would get a lot from that type of discussion this movie is um it is really haunting like i i i watched it and um and there're just like little bits of it that stick in your mind i watched it again and then it really started to come together a lot more for me but uh so we're talking about 1978's Killer of Sheep. This is the directorial debut of Charles Burnett. It was actually his, his thesis while he was at UCLA Film School. Um, and it's really just a reflection on his childhood growing up in Watts, which of course is a historically black neighborhood in uh, Los Angeles. Um, one of the uh, places that was most Victimized by los angeles's uh, uh de jure uh segregation laws um and, and a place that has seen a lot of uh uprising rebellion whatever you want to call it in in the years that followed as a result of that legacy of um uh the ongoing legacy of of social strife there um Allison so this movie doesn't have a plot as such but still Maybe you can give us uh, a brief synopsis of of what goes on in Killer of Sheep.
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is not really a film that has a story per se. It's kind of an 85-minute tone poem, mood piece collage. But the common thread is this character, Stan, who works in a slaughterhouse, which makes him the titular Killer of Sheep. He has a wife who has no name and a son named Stan Jr. And a daughter named Angela, who is played by Burnett's own niece, Angela Burnett. And the film kind of traces in parallel both um, Stan's life as a humble working person in this neighborhood, uh, trying to make a go of it as... A decent working man who is visibly haunted and hollowed out by his menial job in the slaughterhouse. And the parallel thread to that is the children who have not yet been kind of ground down by what it takes to carve out a life in 20th century America and kind of run around the neighborhood and explore it for themselves. And There's, again, no real trajectory, but you have smaller stories within that. So you have Stan's friends who are of the criminal element who try to recruit him to uh, help them kill someone. You have um, Stan's interactions with his wife. You have um, Stan helping his friend try to uh, take a car engine. And together it adds up to this really wonderful naturalist portrait of this neighborhood that, like I said before, even today is not especially well represented in film in film and certainly not by the standards of the early 1970s when it was shot or the late 1970s when it was completed or even the mid aughts, which um, the version that we all watch, which is on canopy a free streaming streaming service that you can access through your Los Angeles public library card. Uh, was distributed in 2007, and that was the first time this movie got real theatrical distribution because of issues over the music rights. Um, so I think that roughly covers it, but maybe a good place to start would be, Frank, what was your first impression of this movie?
2: First impression was that it kind of captured all of this, um, this half-developed, uh, advanced dilapidation of Watts. You know, it kind of made me think about, like, you know, a lot of people don't know that that part of the city looked like that, you know, that there were empty lots, that there were holes and houses and, and um, you know, uh, just that like and then just kind of contrast that with like the images of the time period and the movies that were being made. I went back to 1978 and looked up uh, what won the, uh, the Best Picture Oscar that year. Um, and uh, what was it? Annie Hall. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I just thought it was like you know really cool that that these uh, images existed, and I, I thought the um, the lead actor uh, was like really compelling, you know, um, just in terms of like nonverbal, just kind of desolation.
0: And Annie Hall also has this depiction of Los Angeles too, right? Where it's like you know the um uh, the the line about. Uh, Woody Allen's friend is like, oh, or no, Woody Allen is like, you know, LA's greatest cultural contribution to the world is the right turn on red. Like, we see we see these bits of um, '70s LA where it's just all like white people playing tennis and jogging on the beach or or whatever. And this movie, for for coming out the same year, like it's it's a really uh, stark contrast to. The, like you're saying the types of images of LA that you were seeing in in uh higher budget movies of the same time period
2: yeah it it's it struck me as a film that was like made for uh the people that it depicted in terms of audience you know um it was a commentary that came from inside the community you know about choices that men face right <clears throat> to work hard and then you know, have the, the engine that you worked hard for um, fall off the back of a truck because you didn't secure it and break, you know, uh, and then that guy goes like all that work goes to waste versus, you know, your friends who are just like, rob rob a liquor store, kill this guy, we'll give you some money. Um, you know, these kind of choices between like um, sort of mundane Struggle versus, you know, glamorous life of crime. You know,
1: yeah, yeah, and
2: and then and then the ego, I guess, the the sort of like self, um, self confidence you can get from having that type of lifestyle.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the conversation with the friends who try to recruit him, which brings to mind something I wasn't necessarily expecting from this movie. Was I? I knew it was very naturalist. I was expecting that texture that you get from it. I was expecting, like, the imagery. There are lots of indelible images that you encounter throughout this movie. But I think what kind of surprised me was there are all these little moments for... There are all these, like, really memorable, kind of clever little lines. Um, And in that conversation with his friends, they're trying to say, like, hey, man, like... I know you're trying to live an honest life and work a straight job, but like, it clearly hasn't gotten you very far. So why wouldn't you help us out? And at one point he's like, well, first of all, they say to him, like, look, you can't even buy yourself a decent pair of pants. And he's like, what are you talking about? I donate to the Salvation Army. Would a poor person be able to donate to charity? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's such a, you know, important glimpse into how this man's, sees himself that's also, in the context, I thought, quite funny, which was, wasn't necessarily what I expected from the tone of this movie.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a, such an honest and, and direct discussion of that that sort of dichotomy between, you know, dignity and, and like, participating in the American economy and just becoming, like, a, a laborer, you know? The guys show up at his door, they're living a life of crime, but they're wearing nice clothes, you know? And like they're they're kind of dunking on this guy, and yeah, he, he he's just kind of like struggling, struggling away at his, his job that's kind of hollowing him out on the inside, and uh, and and just like not able to sort of like feel as much self esteem as those guys, um, and it sort of kind of talks about how like this this is uh, it's not just like a struggle for survival, but also like a struggle for dignity. I
0: love the the dignity uh, piece of this because when, when you were talking earlier, Frank, about how this movie feels like it was made for the people that it depicts, uh, I really agree with that. And one of the things that I keep coming back to um, when I think about this movie is what would Charles Burnett, you know, at this point in time in, uh, in his life, he's maybe um, in his 30s or 40s when this is released, we're still when it comes out. We're still like only ten years out from from the Watts uh, riots that left the neighborhood in in the state. Well, I mean, uh, ten years is a long time. A lot of things could have happened in the ten years intervening, but it left the neighborhood in this state that it would not recover from for a long time because of uh, the the sort of predatory way that that um, that capital investments were used in that part of town. So, like, I I, I kind of wonder what. Would Charles Burnett, as as a young man, have wanted for people in his community who grew up in a similar way as him uh, to take out of this character of Stan? Like, what what is he depicting Stan as for them? If he's a rep, is he? I guess is he a representation of sort of like the best? striving for dignity that goes on in Watts despite all of the the barriers to participation in the economy? Or is there something more even?
1: Well, I read a few interviews. So something we should probably talk about is Charles Burnett is originally from the South, like many people, as part of the Great Migration, comes to Watts and grows up in Watts. And then goes to UCLA for film school after initially thinking he might be an electrician. And actually, um, Bracey is someone he met in his high school electronics club, which I really loved. But uh, he attends UCLA for his MFA and is part of this really amazing cohort, including Julie Dash, who directed Daughters of the Dust, and Larry Clark, who made Kids, and Haile Garima, who is this incredible Ethiopian-American filmmaker who was um, recently honored by the Academy Museum. And they formed this kind of informal generation that's in dialogue with both, you know, the cohort of filmmakers who come out of NYU later on. So uh, Charles Burnett's frequently compared to Spike Lee, but also in contrast to USC and kind of their more commercial mindset as a film school. Um, and they describe themselves as very anti-Hollywood, anti-commercial. But then specifically within the field of Black cinema, um, Burnett has kind of highlighted two separate schools of filmmaking that he didn't really want to identify with. And one is black exploitation, which leans into a lot of stereotypes and is obviously very stylized and larger than life and very much not in the style of killer sheep. But the interesting one I saw him mention is kind of social issues filmmaking that in its effort to dignify the working man tends to kind of oversimplify the contradictions of that life and the difficulties of that life. And I do think, you know, in the character of Stan, you see someone who is supposed to be fundamentally dignified and and working towards a dignified life, but also isn't necessarily doing that in a particularly uplifting or simplistic way. And I I saw one example that he brought up is like, you know, an inspirational movie about making a union in a workplace. He doesn't mention Norma Ray, but that's kind of what comes to mind. And he's like, that's not really... What it's like to live in a working class environment it's not the kind of narrative that tends to cohere from real life
0: yeah, I love that it's um it's definitely he's not a caricature of of dignity, you know, and there's um there's a lot in the arc of this movie to the extent that it has one that suggests um you know there's going to be wins, but there are also going to be losses there and the losses may be, uh, sort of outstripped by the wins in the long run. And maybe there's nothing that, maybe there's nothing that, um, Stan and his immediate circumstances can even do about that. I don't know, Frank, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it showed that he was pretty helpless to affect the courses of his life, you know, um, that he kept trying to make a move and the move kept, you know, falling off the back of a truck and, and breaking, you know, and, and I guess a lot of it had to do with these kind of older ideas of what it means to be a man, you know, whether to, you know, take care of a woman, you know, it, it and it talks about how, like, for me, I kind of took the movie as sort of like a capitalist critique, you know, the, the killer of sheep um, being, you know, capitalism and in, in America, right. And the sheep just being, you know, um they kept inter inter uh stitching those images with the sheep with the kids right um and and how they're kind of being chewed up and and you can tell that his job is of, of really gory you know sheep guts and stuff like that is kind of is robbing him of his libido you know like there's a there's a scene where he can't um you know uh or, or he and his wife try to um have sex and and they don't um and uh and so, yeah, I guess, like, it, it seemed to me like like it was he was trying to depict working life, you know, and, and whether or not, you know, buying into this was going to bring happiness, was going to bring dignity. And, and I don't know if, like, he talks about it in his interviews or whatever, but, like, I read in his Wikipedia that he was working, right, the whole time he was making this film. And he did it on the weekends, you know. Um, so i i I feel like that must have i don't know played into it like and especially while you know the his contemporaries probably don't didn't have to work you know his contemporaries probably you know had had money from from some other some other sources you know
0: yeah, he talked about in one of the in one of the interviews he mentioned getting something like a a a three thousand dollar grant um and that being sort of like the difference maker that allowed him to put this movie together even though it was very cheap. Uh, to produce, you know, he got a lot of use of free resources from UCLA. But yeah, you think I think you're absolutely right. Coming from uh coming from a background where unlike a lot of the the uh people who would have been going to to UCLA film school at the time, he was certainly not in a situation where he could just be like, all right, I'm gonna take my shot on on this this film and and um and there's no potential consequences to it. I think that's um, I think that definitely is an impact that you see on the screen. Um, I love too, the angle about um, about the kids and and um, capitalism being this this killer of sheep. We see as you as you mentioned, um, Stan and and various of his co-workers at the slaughterhouse. Uh, herding sheep through the the halls of the slaughterhouse, um, handling them in different parts of uh, the killing process, uh, pulling the skin off and things like that. And like you said, it's constantly cut back and forth with the kids. And the kids are honestly, um, I would say that as much as this movie is about Stan, it has to be considered about the children of Watts, the children growing up in the shadow of uh, of of this rebellion that's happened, and and you already mentioned how, uh, you know everything looks just like bombed out. Like I I was I was looking at it, and um you know just sort of um, it's funny it kind of hits personally for me. My dad grew up in Watts, and he almost never talks about it. Um in in terms of uh anything other than it was a good neighborhood to get out of if you were able to do so. Um, and, um, and I know that's not, you know, that's not everyone's experience, but just to see these images of the time in which he was growing up as a kid and realizing, man, some of these blocks looked like they were straight out of like the post-World War II Europe when you see like images of, uh, Berlin or London and, you know, everything is just reduced to rubble. That's how bad some of this is. That was kind of, that was actually really shocking to me. I had I had no idea, especially 10 years later, that it would have looked like that.
1: I mean, something that occurred to me was, um, even though this is mostly filmed, I think, in like 72 and 73, so that would have been seven years out from the Watts riots, this movie came out or was completed in 1978. So essentially like the exact midpoint between the 1965 Watts riots and what happened after Rodney King, which obviously went across all of Los Angeles, but was partially centered in Watts. And, you know, it's just so amazing how I think now we kind of look at it a little differently. I think something I thought of when I was watching this movie, maybe because it just recently concluded, was Insecure, which is also a piece of filmmaking that very pointedly centers South Los Angeles. But in a very different way of being like, no, we're going to make this look like aspirational and glossy and cool in the same way that you can make Hollywood or Silver Lake or Santa Monica look glossy and cool. And this is very much like, no, we're going to show this as it is. And I think of the shots in the movie, the one that maybe stuck with me the most was very early on when you're seeing the kids kind of roughhousing in a and just, like, a lot, and you see this building in the background, and the actual silhouette of the building is almost like a dingbat. It's like you got the second story that's hanging over the first one, but it's supported by just, like, what appears to just be, like, a stack of bricks and beams, and it's just... It does not look structurally sound, yet it's clearly still in use, and the kids are still navigating this neighborhood because that's Mm -hmm. just where they know.
2: Yeah, I think that... The kid, the footage of the kids was probably one of my favorite parts because it was clearly—I mean, I don't know if they were hired actors with costumes. I doubt it, you know. um, Right there, he produced this with ten thousand dollars, so he just kind of followed around like a bunch of kids who, who were, um, you know, interacting with this this blasted out environment you know, not really knowing the context of it, you know, with this kind of incident, and, 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 like, that's the cool part about this movie, is, like, how it used the kids. Because the, the kids ended up being this contrast, you know? You, you could hardly believe that those kind of dour, you know, um, depressed characters, you know, began as those children, you know? Um, and you, and you, it makes you think about, like, okay, how do they get from from that to this? And, and towards the end of the movie, you can kind of see, you know, the kids start to um ape the behavior of the parents with respect to like, you know, the way they talk and the way they think about, you know, their circumstances and stuff like that. Um and then another random thing was just like <laughs> I've heard a lot of guys say um I ain't po in that way. Um and, and mm-hmm. it was like really uh and 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 I felt like that reflected something, you know, this this idea of like living in poverty but not wanting to be coded. As poor, right? Um, and uh, which kind of, I guess, just goes to show, you know, how much, how much more, how dignity and money are, are kind of, kind of both equally valuable and separately valuable.
1: Yeah. My favorite story I heard about him using non-professional actors from the neighborhood is, you know, part of that is like when there's not a culture of, showing the neighborhood or making films. There are people there aren't as familiar with the processes of filmmaking. And he was like, yeah, like, we would just, like, I had to shoot on the weekends and it was basically just, like, whoever was around would be in the scenes and if they weren't around, they wouldn't. But one time I asked if someone would be there and they were like, no, but, like, can you just sub me in for somebody else. And he had to be like, no, like, I can't, I can't just make another person the character you've already played. But I really enjoyed that.
2: Those visuals, like, of that neighborhood, you know, like, you can still see some of that, you know, in, in Watts today. And, and and when you go to, you know, the poor neighborhood in, in any city, right, especially a place like Philadelphia, you know, like, uh, you know, stuff that, that, would have been bulldozed and replaced with a mixed use you know uh, 10% affordable <laughs> four story whatever you know like in a lightning black in and, and, and a lightning flash like they just stick around and they keep using it you know until it, it literally yeah. falls down and then they keep using it some more you know so
0: I definitely feel like one of the um, one of the things that sticks out about the kids when you're watching these kids in the movie almost everything they're doing, uh, the, the it's so easy to see this neighborhood in this movie through the eyes of a kid we' I, I feel like most of the scenes we're seeing uh, things happening in terms of kids interactions with each other their kids hanging around as the adults are interacting um, and it's this sort of very uh, there's like there's not very many barriers in this, in this environment in terms of like, there's not a, a a formal effort to say like, you know, the, this is where the kids are going to be and they're going to be in this controlled environment. And this is where the adults are going to be. And we're going to, uh, you know, if we have adult things to discuss or do, we're going to do it over here. There's not really, that's, that's a luxury, right? And that's not mm-hmm. something that uh, that anyone in this community can really afford to do in this movie. So we're seeing a lot of different aspects of life through the perspective of the kids. I loved the scenes of just like, and we get a lot of different ones of, of watching them play, right? And, and, and it really forces you to, um, to think about the fact that if you're a kid and you don't have toys, are you not going to play? No, you're going to play. And they play with rocks throwing rocks at each other and then they get hurt because the and they don't, you know, th- there's no other way that you can play, you know, you can't Rock throw rocks not without occasionally. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They don't have, they don't have a safe environment to play in or you don't provide like, uh or if you don't have access to uh, a place where you can go play, then, you you know, they're going to go play with the freight trains like they're doing, playing under the freight trains and jumping across roofs and things like that. And, uh and it's um it's really just uh it's it's exhilarating in a way because you're watching these kids just be kids in um in the face of having not like no means with which to be a kid. they're still just out there being children and exploring the world at the same time with that exhilaration comes a lot of danger and comes a lot of exposure to things that. Um, are potentially going to be harmful, traumatizing, um, or just, you know, just bad for them in in the long run.
1: Yeah, I think the shot that crystallizes that, which I think is maybe the most famous shot from the movie, is just when the camera is angled up um, between two rooftops and you just see the kids jumping between the rooftops because that's what you do when you're a kid. You just run and jump. And of course, like, it's so beautiful, really sticks with you. And it's this image of freedom in the face of adversity and mobility. But of course, they're jumping between two not particularly structurally sound buildings. It's not like a safe activity. It's just what you're doing within the constraints you have.
2: Yeah, that was such a cool shot, uh, where it starts with the kids on the rooftop, then it pans down to this the, the main character just walking, looking incredibly dejected, you know, and... Yeah, I guess, like, when when I saw the kids, I guess I kind of just thought about their innocence, right? And and how, you know, if people had the means, they would try to protect that innocence, try to shelter that innocence from the world. But, um, you know, no one in this movie could. You know, the, the, that innocence was just running around, <laughs> getting in the dirt, throwing rocks at each other, overhearing the financial problems, the romantic problems of... Of their parents you know, seeing the gambling right up front and and um yeah, yeah, so I don't know that was uh that was just like an interesting kind of like the movie sort of like never directly seems to talk about it except for just like showing those those images
1: well, I'm like literally the first scene in the movie is a adult saying to a child, like, you need to think about what's going to happen when I die. <laughs> like, yes. that's, that's the note we start on, and everything is kind <laughs> yeah. of in the shadow, even though that isn't linearly connected to the rest of the story in any really direct way.
0: Yeah. There's um, a big uh, aspect to that particular scene, watching the, um, uh, watching the kids jump over the roofs, like you said. We, we've, got, um, we've got Stan... And his friend walking through his friend Jean. They're walking through this uh, little alley or passageway, and um, and looking very dejected. They just lost the the motor that they went to so much effort to get. And then uh, another incredible juxtaposition. You have um, uh, a different character who's just been thrown out of his home by his partner, who who uh, has a gun, and and he's been apparently hitting their child. And so she's thrown him out. She throws his, uh, sunglasses down at him and he's like, uh, and, and, they're just, you know, kids, they're just kids everywhere around in almost all of these scenes. They're just standing there. Um, and so he's, you know, he's saying next time I see you, you're dead, you know? And, um, and it's this incredibly, uh, this is this incredibly dark interaction that actually gets at something that is sort of a theme, I think throughout the movie, um, that was sort of like on the, the threshold between the interior space of people's homes and the exterior space of this, this sort of community life. But that seems like it's the primary, to me, distinction. You know, we have, um, throughout the movie, people being uh, asked to go into the street and, you know, have to grapple with the world as it exists and what's on the inside, you know, there are also just these depressing conditions Stan isn't able to sleep the whole movie. Stan Jr. at one point is hiding in the house pouring what is a, a truly absurd amount of sugar onto his cereal. It's oh, just like, yeah. Why aren't you out in the streets? What was that? And he's like, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. Uh, I can't I can't go outside. I don't have money. And you sort of, I don't know. It was just that, that sort of like this, uh, the contrast between the interior spaces, particularly people's homes, uh, where there's all this uh, very private pain and then the exterior world where there's all this uh, sort of temptation or threat of violence was a really interesting contrast to me.
2: Yeah, you see the kids kind of get unhappy, I think, sort of through the course of the movie. And when he was pouring that sugar into the cereal, (laughs) I was losing it. That was funny. I was like, okay, Frosted Flakes. I was down for like the first second. Then he keeps pouring, and then he keeps pouring, and then he keeps pouring. (laughs) Oh, man. And then he just sticks a spoon into it and crunches it all up. And I was like, is there milk in there? Like... I don't know, this bowl of cereal really, really tripped me out.
1: <laughs> yeah, for a movie that's, like, only 85 minutes front to back, I thought it it makes really strong use of just, like, holding on things for a long time, whether it's, yeah. like, the comic kick of just watching someone, like, pour an endless stream of sugar into their cereal, or, like, I actually looked up the scene independently on YouTube after, but the scene where... um Uh, Stan and his wife are dancing to this bitter earth and you're just like watching them. And, you know, it goes from this moment of like intense romantic connection to she tries to escalate it further to something physical and he kind of demures and walks away and she drapes herself against the window. But when I looked it up and watched it just like as a solo scene, I realized like it's four minutes. Like it's a long scene, which means that like, if the movie's only 85 minutes, like 5% of the movie is the main character dancing with his wife and like never bringing that encounter to like a conventional romantic or narrative closure.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was that was a good piece of acting or, or I don't know anything about acting, but it seemed, it seemed like a good piece of it acting. It's good to there. watch, right? So yeah, just in terms of like, yeah, like you're right, it started out like intense, erotic. You know, and then, uh, and then, like they kept turning around. You could see his face just kind of fall, you know, more and more uh, as that uh, as that went around. Um, Yeah, that was really cool.
0: I mean, I think too uh, that Stan's wife is such an interesting character in general. Trying to trying to track uh, the character of somebody who doesn't even have a name in the movie is always is interesting, right? But um, but she does a lot in terms of, uh, so, and I mean, in, in terms of the contrast that I, I, I was just talking about, this is somebody who is basically confined to this interior space, right? She doesn't We don't really see her outside except for at one point when she comes out to um, sort of try and chase off these two guys who are trying to loop Stan into a murder with them other than that she's mostly indoors she's doing dishes she's trying unsuccessfully to draw out some uh romantic attention from from Stan or just sort of revive him in a way because he's he's basically just like a zombie when he's when he's home um and you know the kids are are running off and doing whatever so she's kind of just like Trapped and alone in, in this, in this uh, very dark, very small space, and trying to bring uh, some life into it in a way that the movie makes clear is extremely challenging, if not just downright impossible.
1: And she's wearing a house coat, which is like truly not something you see very often anymore. But I, I love that wardrobe choice and the print on it. It made me like the movie's in black and white. And I love that. And it's, it's very effective. But I was like, I would love to see. I bet it's got like the best color print on that house
2: coat. <laughs> yeah, her, her appearance was always immaculate. You know, she was fully made up. She would spend a lot of time in front of the mirror, smoothing down wrinkles and everything like that um and uh yeah the whole movie is just them trying to kind of bring that life to their life you know like bring a sense of life and vibrance to their life and there was that one they tried to go on a trip right and that that's supposed to be like the reward right it's saturday it's the weekend you know you go you know your hard-earned money bought you this hard-earned car where you go and you take your, your family out to the country and you do this sort of like road trip, which I bet a lot of other people are doing at the time, you know, for the vibes and stuff like that. But then the car breaks down <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> they just go home, you know. Yeah. Um, on the rim.
0: They they have to go home on the rim. Go home it's on so the rim. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they don't and
1: have the- a replacement tire. This was before, before AAA, I guess. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I almost <laughs> thought the movie was going to have a happy ending like with them just kind of like playing in the, you know, the countryside and then the car broke down. I was like, "Oh, it's this type of movie." Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: the the thing that, that that is yeah, so that is the time that we see uh, Stan's wife outside of the house, you know, when they're they're driving out to Los Alamitos to go to to oh, the racetrack, but m- I think my favorite moment with her in the movie, she has this little like, narrated monologue at one point where she's talking about the life that she remembers back in the South before they left uh, for Los Angeles this is another one of those fantastic contrasts in this movie. Allison, you already mentioned, um, you know, that the, the the Black community in, in L.A., uh, like, you know, like many others uh, across the country, though not all of them, is primarily made up of people who moved, uh, who moved from the South, following you know, like in the in the decades following World War One, basically the second Great mo- Migration. And um, my my family came out from from New Orleans. Stan's family, I think, you get them. Uh, they're from Mississippi, I think. And there's a big contrast where it's like you get Stan's wife talking about her nostalgia for living with family in um you know in the south and being around her grandmother and and all of the the scents and sounds and smells that that remind her of of home and it's this really beautiful poetic language meanwhile we also have Stan we already talked about the fact that he really is sensitive about people intimating that he is not middle class, that he's poor. Um, but he's also really sensitive about those connections to the the South, where where he's from. And his son uh, says Madeer to his mom, uh, which is like this, uh, 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 I guess, um, Southern form of address that they would have used when they were back in Mississippi. Um, and he's like, you know, you're not out in the country anymore. And you get this sense of, what is the reason why all of these families came out to los angeles and how different is it than the reality of the lives that they're living now that they're in los angeles there's like this really unresolved tension right between what was that what was that immigrant dream versus what is the reality of living there and um and how do you How do you justify in your mind all that you had to leave behind to end up in the community that you now find yourself in?
1: Well, I remember noticing on rewatch, again, early on in the movie when he's talking to his friend about how soul-sucking his job is and how he can't sleep at night. And his friend is like, well, when's the last time you went to church? And his answer is like, not since I left home. Like, he still describes the South as like, that's home, that's where I'm from. Um, But also like, he's clearly changed his lifestyle to accommodate this new, like slightly more secular place where he's ended up. And I don't know. It is really interesting how it's, it's echoing Charles Burnett's own family history, but something he's talking, he's talked about is like, there's a lot of Southern culture just like naturally inflected in Watts because so much of the community came from the South, like within the living memory of basically everyone who was living there.
2: Yeah, I didn't understand that part, actually, where he got really mad at his son for calling his grandma. And now I do. Um, and that's like a, a part about not just about the Great Migration, but about immigration in general that people don't tend to pay attention to, which is that you got to flex on the people back home. You know, <laughs> like, you got, like like it has you, to be worth and, it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you are in an argument with your family about whether or not it was worth coming out there. That argument lasts your entire life. You know, that ar- argument, there's no conclusion to it. You're always being like, oh, well, here we got this and here we got this. You know, so every every immigrant needs to to kind of like come up with their own rationalization as to why their decision was better, right? And, and so that drives a lot of social activity, especially among like great migration communities, right? And so much of... The sort of glamour of like West Adams and and of of you know Central Avenue was to flex on the relatives for for, for coming home. They had to they had to get those pics off, you know, and uh, and then when their when their uh, uh, relatives came, they would throw huge parties with more lavish stuff that than than you know they really even had. I mean, and so that that that's interesting. That's that's a part of this movie. It's just like. Managing the perceptions back home, you know, everyone back home needs to think that, you know, you're you're wearing dope suits and and uh, like partying all the time.
0: Right. You may. I mean, you you made it out of the conditions in in the segregationist South, and for for you to uproot your whole life like that, cut all your ties to people that you love the most in the world, you definitely have the sense that um, it it does need to be. It it needs to have been good enough to be worth it. And I totally get where that can become. I think in uh in Stan's wife's case, that becomes sort of this isolating thing where she, I don't think that she would say that she feels like that that change was worth it. She's much more uh nostalgic about the life that she had before. Whereas for Stan, I think it it sort of has become um. I mean, self-denial might be uh, denial might be too strong of a word, but it definitely seems like it is um, something where he has to say, I am I am middle class. I am, you know, I am making it work out here. It was worth it for us to come here. We're leaving behind the trappings of a life where we were a permanent second class in the South. Um, and and all of that is sort of debatable and he kind of has various people in his life just sort of you know, like we've already said, rubbing his face in the fact that um, he's trying to do everything the right way and where, where is it getting him? He gets we didn't even bring up the fact that uh, he goes to cash a check at the liquor store because there are no banks um, oh. and no bank and no bank accounts. Um, and the woman the the white woman, one of like a hand, uh, the only woman who is white with a a speaking role in this movie, um, who runs the liquor store and like propositions him like she wants to hire him to work in this liquor store, um, but it's heavily suggested that it's just because she wants to take sexual advantage of him. And so wow, he's like, so, okay. he's trying to go down this right, this right path, right? And there's not like, it's just like every direction that he goes, like you were saying, Frank, like with the, the analogy between uh the capitalist society and and the the sheep every way he goes he's just like getting funneled into a different set of tracks right there's not like a there's not like a clear path for him out of this system that he's in.
1: Well and I feel like basically the only other white character of consequence that I can even think of off the top of my head is Stan's like boss slash coworker in the slaughterhouse, it's implied. But it is interesting, like, discussing the Great Migration and the stakes of that. It's not something that's, like, directly addressed by this movie, although it's obviously implicit in the geography of Watts. But I think an interesting flip side to that is, like, the LAPD. um, There's, like, a weird parallel in that the LAPD, like, has proven, like, they would recruit from the South. Like, they would be like, we want you know, we have an, we have an increasing black population. We need to manage it with all the nastiness that entails. Like we're going to recruit people who are from a region with experience in doing that. And imagining, you know, you are leaving the South as a black family in part to escape that power structure and then having the power structure of the place that you're migrating to literally like recruit your oppressor because they want to replicate that same dynamic and make sure that the status quo stays in place is just yeah i mean again like leaving one place and then finding those same problems just in a slightly different presentation where you end up
2: right i mean i think with the great migration and with any any immigration there comes like a reimagining or a reconceptualization of the self um, I'm no longer, you know, with my parents, it's like, I'm no longer Taiwanese. I'm American, you know, American. So I do things this way and my kids do things this way, you know? Um, and, uh, and it's the same thing from, from coming from the, for the, to the cities, you know, now I'm a city, you know, black person, you know, a city black person does this and a city black person does this. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of like, they're, they're yeah I guess there's there's sort of like chasing the the status of the city person and the status itself like the perception itself matters almost more than the reality which is you know kind of and in a lot of times which was was you know stacking up like sardines in, in, in overcrowded housing conditions you know which which was you know Watts and and every every sort of nascent black neighborhood back then
1: yeah I mean the psychological aftertale of that like you. Describing that made me think of my my late grandfather grew up in um, New York City. His, his parents were immigrants with fourth grade educations. He did not grow up in like a primarily English-speaking household. His parents spoke Yiddish. And he grew up in like a very heavily assimilationist era of immigration of all kinds. Um, grew up in a suburb in Long Island, went to college and grad school, and then as an adult, when I knew him, he spoke like four words of Yiddish tops, which was like very obviously like a psychological block in that, you know, you don't just forget a language that you spoke like pretty fluently for most of your childhood, but it was very encouraged to just like completely compartmentalize that and put it in the mental waste bin. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And keep it in uh, the interior, like the, again, the interior life of, of, uh, the home. Right. And, and, um, I had uh, my grandfather on my mother's side also spoke, uh, uh, Yiddish at home, I think for, for a long time throughout his adult life. Um, just cause that was the way he was raised. <laughs> um, but like, I, I think too, one of the things that's interesting, you know, we talk about the great migration and I do think that it's, um, a heavy presence in this movie. One of the things that's, Really interesting to me, especially because we're recording this, you know, right after the Super Bowl. There's been all this discussion about Inglewood. Um, you brought up Insecure. This sort of, uh, the, the the series has tracked the changing character of Inglewood of with gentrification. Um, and a lot of the conversation has been about how Los Angeles, which once had... Um, I th- I think that the black population of, of LA was once as high as uh, in the range of like 15 to 20%. Now it's down to, um, I believe, under 10% in the city. Um, and it's still going down, you know. Um, so I think that part of what I hadn't really thought about, but you can see, um, and, and the conversation we've had has brought up for me, is the seeds of this reverse great migration um, that has been happening for the last two or so decades, uh, two or three decades, actually, where uh, black Americans have been going back to urban centers in the South. And, you know, the black population of places like Charleston um, famously wants um, a, a slave entry point to, to America. Or Atlanta, um, these places that were old Confederate centers uh, are now seeing a huge increase in their their black population from places, in particular from the West Coast, uh, where where black families originally fled for the promise of this part of America that was supposed to be untouched by racism. I I I see that in some of these scenes that we're looking at, where it's just like, um, you know. This was supposed to be a place of upward mobility. L.A. was supposed to be the place where everybody could have a middle-class life. You see that in Stan's character really clearly. And yet throughout the movie, what we see is this specter of what in the 60s at least was being called the permanent underclass, right? Where there was uh, people who had so completely fallen out of the economy that there was not a way for them to get back in. And, and, you know, like Frank, you mentioned that with the people who are uh, living as like stick up men or whatever. And that's the way they're like, that's how you make $5. He asked somebody, how can I make a couple dollars? They're like, go rob the liquor store. (laughs) Like that's, (laughs) um, that's like, that's a clear and present force in these people's lives is this downward mobility. Like you're poor and you don't have a path to the middle class, but there is a path down and that that seems like it's it's um apparent in in so many of these characters
2: yeah like you have those for a while I guess in the 40s 50s, 56 couple decades there la had a lot of manufacturing jobs and that and that was the sort of like origins of you know you know why Stan could have that job right why why a lot of people thought they could move to la you know to to get a home and 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 those industries right those manufacturing industries, um, they were powerful lobbies, and especially their unions, and they would they would lobby the city, you know, to to build cheaper housing, you know, build affordable housing, you know, because they wanted their workers to be able to live close to the factory, you know. And when that went away, you know, the the reason to build uh, houses and housing that that wage workers could afford went away too, uh, politically.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I actually just read Joan Didion's Where I Was From for obvious reasons, but something she talks about a lot is the kind of California dream as manufactured by these post-war employers. She's specifically interested in the aerospace industry, which is not very far from Watts. It's like kind of a few clicks east along the five freeway But she talks about how, you know, all of the single-family home construction was built around the uh, Douglas factory in Lakewood. And everyone who moved for those jobs moved because they just assumed, like, that would always be there. And there would always be this kind of spine of the community that would finance their lifestyles and support the community at large. And it is very interesting to think of that in the context of Killer of Sheep, where this is ostensibly kind of the boom time. I guess the 70s are sort of right when things start to, are on the precipice of trailing off in particularly the 80s and 90s. But, you know, ostensibly, this was kind of the high point for being able to come to California and make it. But of course, the demographic that Didion is describing is mostly middle-class emigrants who are white and from the Midwest. And this is a very different cohort for whom that dream was never even available. And it's just interesting to think of those things as in parallel because they're only really happening literally a few miles from each other.
2: Yeah, there are two different dreams, right? One, One dream is like the coming to LA and having the lawn and then like, and I feel like the other dream is just to like, be able to have a job, you know, like someone's going to pay me for this, you know, I'm going go to go I'm going to go do this and and with that I'll figure something out, you know, but then you're like, oh, like no no one will let me live in this neighborhood. Oh, I can only live in this neighborhood with this quality of housing and oh, you know, uh I can only shop at this place and you're kind of pushed into yeah, lower quality of life than than you came from.
0: I think too one of the one of the things that I was thinking about uh as a, as I rewatched Killer of Sheep was when it comes to the discussions of of that underclass and the different sort of way that pe- people attach a lot of qualities to to these folks who don't have access to even participate in the uh, economic market, right? Almost everybody that we see outside of stands um, outside of stands actual work. Almost all of the adults that we see are not employed in a formal way, as far as we can tell. Um, there are people who are uh, stealing. There are people who are just drunk most of the time. There are people who are um, apparently pimps, as far as I can tell. And then there's there's very few people besides Stan who are actually like able to keep up a job. And in America, we have this tendency to say... That that says something about you know it's like it's a very um, it's almost like a very Dickensian sort of attitude in in America right? Well, Dickens was was criticizing it, but in 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 London in the nineteenth century, you had this idea that uh, people who were poor deserved to be poor because they were um, they were morally bankrupt and probably inherently worse people than the people who were in the middle or the upper classes. Um, and, and in America, it seems like we have some of that mentality, especially in, in L.A. And I do kind of wonder as far as, um, as, far as like the actual underclass distinction goes, as homelessness gets worse and worse in L.A., that to me seems like it is not a perfect parallel, but it is also racially inflected. And it seems like we have a growing number of people who uh, try as they might would not be able to catch up to even the bottom rung of the economic ladder here, and it just is. Um, I don't know. I mean, does that does That's that uh, does that yeah, ring like, true for you? Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, is it poor people's fault that they're poor? You know, <clears throat> is it a criminal's fault that they commit a crime? You know, is the law so just? You know, that violating the law means that this person is 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 morally bankrupt. You know, moralizing, right? There's all this hidden moralizing that gets smuggled into the way we think about, you know, uh, jobs. About whether or not, you know, having a job or not, you know, is, is something fully within your control or not. And then you're choosing not to, you know. Um, and, and that just like, it doesn't correspond to the real calculus of poverty, Right which is a set of, of of traps down at the bottom that that you know people don't necessarily experience when they're they're not you know down at the bottom you know it's it's the trap of evictions versus and bankruptcies and eviction records messing up your your ability to have an address and your inability to have an address messing up your ability to have a job and your you know not ability not not being able to be clean and not being and, and so all of these different things are you know we we attach sort of moral uh value to them but but i always just see them as as aspects of poverty you know and, and 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 when you're in in poverty you're just experiencing them you know and so yeah homelessness you know is definitely one of those issues where everyone is making that calculation you know like you could really everyone decides like how much to blame homeless people for being homeless you know everyone like takes their own situation their own choices their own sort of You know generalizations they decide you know i can assess whether or not (laughs) this person on the street who was asking me for money deserves it or not you know and uh you just can't you know um so so i don't know it's 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 uh it's it's one of those things where where you know it, you 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 could zoom out further and further, and you'd get to the America, you know, because it it goes to to whether or not we think the country is a meritocracy, you know, and uh, if we do think it's a meritocracy, well, which part of it, and for who, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, to what degree, and how generalizable is it, you know, to other people's experiences, you know, and so I don't know, yeah, homelessness and, and crime is definitely one of those things where. You know, we we appear to be talking about the same things, you know, but uh, we're not. You know, one 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 side sees homelessness as as you know, uh, uselessness and, and drug use, right, and the other the other and and uh, and and failing at life, you know, um, and I don't know. The the truth is somewhere in the middle, yeah. as always. <laughs> I think uh, just to to
0: come back to that that image of them, uh, Stan and Gene put, putting the engine on the back of their car, and uh, you know not really having anything to secure it and trying to drive away, and it breaks, and then Gene is just like it's it's broken, it's trash, just forget about it. And they drive away. Um, it, what what to me was striking about that, and maybe this is a good note to go out on, is um, this. Environment that we've spent so much time in in, in this movie, we've seen so many different images of how people are trying to navigate it. Um, you just you actually really feel. I feel like you really feel that, and we've we've mentioned that moment in the movie several times. I think because it works so well as this, you feel uh, exactly how hard Gene and Stan were working to get. Stan was trying to help his friend. Gene was trying to get this car in working order. You feel how much uh, investment and and emotional attachment they had to getting this car working, getting this new engine in it. They had invested their last dollars into doing it. And and in, a, in an instant, and this is something that somebody who is economically secure usually cannot relate to. So Burnett has done a, a really incredible job with this. In an instant, it goes from being the most precious thing in their possession to trash that they just leave on on the side of the road and it's un, it's not recoverable there's no going back there's no there's no do overs you can't go get a second one um that is that is the um that I think that's the success of the movie is that it's able to to help viewers see what it is to be striving like that knowing that at any moment um you know all of your efforts could just be uh, flushed away, basically, you know? That's uh, that's something this movie does great.
2: He was making this film in the 70s, right? And that's when we were creating all these narratives around crime and homelessness, right? We were moving from hobo to homeless, right? Uh, Venice, right? Venice Venice was, was going off, and, and like homelessness of a certain kind was being glorified there as bohemianism, you know? And uh, homelessness was being racially coded at this time. So... It just makes sense that that he would want to make this movie kind of trying to complicate people's idea of of poverty and struggle.
1: Yeah. And it's really, I mean, maybe now that we're wrapping it up, we can look a little bit to the rest of Charles Burnett's career. But this movie obviously never gets real theatrical distribution, kind of remains a sort of cult object. It's um, added to the National Register of Notable Films, I believe, in 1990, which is, Amazing because it wouldn't get a real theatrical release for another seventeen years after that. But throughout his career, Charles Burnett makes these like very outside the mainstream movies that uh, kind of find their audience, but aren't really accepted into the American film vernacular. Uh, to Sleep with Anger, starring Daniel Danny Glover, is probably his most conventional production, and even that did not thrive in the traditional system. Um, Frank, I was texting Scott right before. This is something I discovered to my delight while I was researching this, is that he made a Disney Channel original movie in the (laughs) (laughs) mid-1990s. I think this was before the Disney Channel original movie took on the valence that we associate with it because this is like a a sober drama about slavery from what I understand, but Beau Bridges and Lorraine de are in it, and it's based on a Gary Paulson novel. Um, oh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. This is so, a quality
2: project. <laughs> I
1: know. I really I really should have like done the extra effort and tried to like dig up some grainy, <laughs> some grainy rip of that. But it is really amazing that he kind of carves out this career on the margins, and that has only recently come to be, you know, I think he's been accepted into the canon and he's also he's still alive. He's 77. Mm-hmm. Um but it is this is such an indicative start to a career that I think is very insistently has no interest in speaking into or breaking into the mainstream. And he would just use funding from, you know, he had this three thousand dollar grant from this movie. Um, throughout his career, he's been both a Guggenheim fellow and a MacArthur Genius grant recipient. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and the MacArthur Genius Grant happened again, I think either in 1990 or in the early 1990s. So certainly before he achieved the stature he currently enjoys. And um, I think part of what was so cool about seeing this movie for me was just kind of introducing me to the oeuvre of this filmmaker. And I hope our listeners can check some of those out.
2: Yeah, I, I was looking at this guy's... Um, the, well, the main character is still acting. Uh, he did something like last year or something like that. What's his name? Um you guys probably wow. not want to include this as part of the, the podcast, but uh, uh, let's see. He was in, um, yeah, Charming the Hearts of Men 2021. Um, wow. He was in CSI. I hadn't even checked out his his IMDb. He was in Grey's Anatomy in 2013. That's incredible.
1: Wait, Charming the yeah. Hearts of Men starring Kelsey Grammer. Okay. Kelsey motherfucking
2: Grammer, Yeah. Kelsey Grammar, I think, has a black wife and, and he's just like really, he, he always participates in the black community like a lot. <laughs> it's very
0: strange. <laughs> um, wow, okay. Um, this movie was fantastic. Definitely recommend uh, anyone listening. Check it out. Um, Frank, anything that you're working on right now that you want listeners to to check out while we've got you here or where can they find you online?
2: Uh, Well, I'm online at my terrible Twitter account, uh, Frank Shong, F-R-A-N-K-S-H-Y-O-N-G. I'm on Instagram as Frank Bear, uh, and my column runs uh, every Friday at LATimes.com. So those are my places.
0: Thank you for being here. Thank you, everybody at home, for listening. We will be back in two weeks. We're going to be talking about the movie Mildred Pierce, a 1946 Film noir, it is going to be a lot of fun. So check us out then.